What's going on, everybody? Welcome on into the Matt Lombardo Show. As always, I'm heavy sports NFL insider Matt Lombardo. We have a monster show on tap for you today. Joining me a little bit later on, Mike Golick and Mike Golick Jr. breaking down all of the biggest storylines across the NFL, all of their favorite menu items on Chili's new happy hour, their football happy hour menu. Can't wait to talk food and football with those two. That's always a great time. And we are coming off a week in the NFL where I think more so than any other week, and certainly the NFL is a week-to-week, game-to-game league, and the storylines are always changing. You have the power rankings evolving every week. I think that this past Sunday told us more than any Sunday that we've had in the last five or six weeks about who are the contenders, who are the pretenders. One team made a big change off of their big loss, and I think in the AFC – The hierarchy got turned on its ear on Sunday afternoon. We're going to get into all of that and a whole lot more. But if you enjoy the podcast, would really appreciate it if you go ahead and subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store. Leave us a five-star review there. Let us know what you like about the podcast, what you don't like, maybe a guest or two that you'd like to hear from, and we'll try to go and get them on. You can also check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, Spreaker, all of your favorite podcast platforms, and toss us a like on YouTube. That really does help grow the show, gets us out there, and certainly it really helps the process. So a lot to get into here on the podcast this week. This should be a lot of fun. Joining me right now, two radio legends, one NFL legend, Mike Golick and Mike Golick Jr. on behalf of Chili's and the launch of the football happy hour menu. Gentlemen, thanks for taking a few minutes today. Oh, happy to be here. Loving it. I love it. Was that Mike? Were you the NFL legend? I don't remember. I I just appreciate now that by proxy, this is, and dad, I learned this from you that the further and further away you get from your playing career. And in this case, the further and further get in, it gets easy to throw around the word legend and people will just go along with it. It is amazing. When I get introduced as a Notre Dame legend, NFL legend and broadcasting legend, I just... I'm snickering so much saying, oh, my God, is that so far from the truth? (laughs) Well, Mike, dude, you know, growing up in the Philadelphia area, watching those defenses with you and and Jerome Brown and Reggie White and the career that you had in the broadcasting realm in this area during your career, after your career, the Mike Golick show the whole way up. And of course, now watching you, Mike Golick Jr., you know, carving your own niche in the podcast and radio world. It's just been really fascinating and uh, intriguing and exciting to watch throughout your guys' careers. And it's it's a lot of fun and a conversation that I've really been looking forward to having here on the podcast. No, definitely. It's been a good time. It's It's been a good time and, and getting to overlap and do a bunch of this together, I know, was pretty cool for us, too. So I, I always tell everyone, I grew up watching Mike and Mike just like all you did. I didn't have a choice now. My mom wouldn't let us watch anything different, but I still grew up watching it with you guys, so I get it. I think the great, the biggest thing that I told them, Mike, when Mike and Mike started, Mike was 10, Jake was 9, and Sydney was like 6. And I told them, I said, you guys are, are what, what, what we like to call in the business is content. Anything stupid you do as kids will be broadcast on air, right. uh, which is what we did. But then, I mean, it grew all the way to Mike and Mike working on uh, uh, Mike and Mike, me and, and Mike working together. And uh, that was the best part of it for me. I mean, to flip on a mic and be able to work with one of your kids is a pretty, pretty cool experience. Yeah, so guys, I want to start real quick here talking about your former team, Mike, the Philadelphia Eagles. And they, you know, looking into a few weeks ago, it looked like their run defense was kind of the weakness if there was a weak point on that roster that Howie Roseman's built. But they go out, they bring in Ndamukong Su, they bring in Linvel Joseph. You know, watching their first couple of games together, what have you seen and, and how much can you take away what they were able to do against Jonathan Taylor and then the Packers on Sunday night as far as the impact those two guys are having? 
Well, I mean, it's a team that that's obviously going for it. Howie Roseman has done a great job building a team, and then they trade for Robert Quinn, another pass rusher, and they have a few pass rushers as well. So this is kind of the all-in mentality that the Rams had last year, though the Eagles haven't didn't have to give up as many draft picks as the Rams did. Uh, so those guys, listen, they they that's what was available, and there were two good guys available to stop the run because that that was one of the main things they needed. You know, if there was a little you know chink in the armor. You know, that might have been it. Same with Buffalo outside of Josh Allen throwing red zone interceptions. Their run defense hadn't been great. And that had said something that uh, the Eagles needed to shore up as well. Because when you get into the playoffs and you get into bad weather and you get into teams that can run the ball, that can really hurt you. So they had to find some guys that can help them stop the run. And I think they did. Yeah, and I think schematically for them, I know there have been a lot of Eagles fans that were critical of Jonathan Gannon and the job that had come up there because it had followed a pretty strict pattern, right? Early downs, they were going to put five guys up by the line of scrimmage. Late downs, they were going to lighten the box. We know the Jordan Davis conversation that's been going around in the Philadelphia fan base for a while. And so, you know, for Linval, he's still a professional people eater, right? You look at him in the middle and he was already a guy that was able to come in and buy up some of that space in there, create problems when you did get those one-on-one matchups. Him and Indomitian and Shush and Sush showed up pretty early on a D-line that's got a ton of depth. I th- still think schematically it's going to be about using some of that depth and those personnel to put your team in less obvious situations. I, I kind of likened it when I was talking to Ben Solak, who Philadelphia fans are familiar with over at the Ringer, kind of like what we said about the Bengals' offense earlier in the year. Joe Burrow was under center. They were running it. Joe Burrow was in the shotgun. They were passing it in defenses were keying in on that and so I think some of making that variable for Philadelphia on defense down the stretch of the season is going to be huge and of course you look at the Philadelphia Eagles you look at the Buffalo Bills the Kansas City Chiefs we all kind of expected those teams to be in the mix right we expected them to be the upper echelon Super Bowl contenders they were the teams you zeroed in on preseason and they've delivered but I'm really curious from both of you guys who's the surprise team for you, you're surprised by the success, or maybe you're a little bit underwhelmed. Certainly, the Rams come to mind in the underwhelmed category. But who are your biggest surprises on both sides of the ledger so far? I'll let you start that one, Mike. Um, I would say biggest surprises on the bad side. Yeah, I would say it's a tie between the entire non-Kansas City AFC West and the entire top of what we thought the NFC was going to be, right? You mentioned the Rams, the Bucks, and the Packers were the teams coming into the season that were one, two, and three consensus. Hey, we expect them to do pretty well. I think a lot of people, like you said, saw the Eagles coming, had high hopes for the Vikings as well, but those were the teams at the top of the list. I think on the positive end, the NFC East, I, I would say the way that Dallas got here is the most surprising to me because if you were to say going into this year you had Dak Prescott go down with an injury in the first game you had Tyron Smith your future possibly Hall of Fame left tackle go down before the season starts you had to kick a rookie out from guard to tackle and all these things that have mounted up for that team injury wise to start the year and they'd be sitting here you look at the NFC wildcard picture it is the NFC East right now the right. fact that they've managed to pull that off the way that they did reinvent that team's identity around the ground game and an offensive line that all of a sudden looks like one of the strengths of the team again combined with a defensive player of the year on the other side Micah Parsons I I think has been really interesting to watch the Cowboys not just go out and be front runners but weather adversity this season I think the two teams for me in the NFC was Minnesota because Minnesota is a team that normally ends up not bad enough to be horrible and not good enough to be great. They're stuck in the middle, and we just wait for that to happen. And then we saw them a couple of weeks ago get destroyed by Dallas, and you're like, 
okay, here they go. And then they win a primetime game the following week on, on Thursday night on Thanksgiving when Kirk Cousins usually doesn't play well in primetime. So that's a team that, okay, can they stay above what their Mendoza line had been and really make a run? And in the AFC, listen, there were there were two, two quarterbacks that we questioned, is it going to be their team going forward? Jalen Hurts was one, and he's right. proven it. And then in Miami with Tua. I mean, you know, Tyreek Hill gets traded there, and all of a sudden he's saying two is the most accurate quarterback in the NFL. We're like, okay, Tyreek, slow your roll. You're trying to build your quarterback up. But he's got the highest-rated quarterback in the league. And this team, you know, is right up there at the top of the division that we thought Buffalo would run away with, and they've beaten Buffalo already mm-hmm. this year. So that, to me, I mean, you, you wondered if they were going to peter out, but we're 11 games in with them, and they're sitting right there. So I think they've been a really present surprise of not only being better, but looking like they're going to compete in the AFC. And kind of jumping off from there, I love what they've been able to do with Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill. And obviously you bring in Jeff Wilson, who knows the offense, you know, like the back of his hands from San Francisco with Mike McDaniel. And as impressive as Tua has been, and I think he's been one of the biggest stories of the entire year, Mike McDaniel has really made a lot of waves in terms of, at least in my opinion, he's a legitimate front runner in the conversation for coach of the year. I'm curious how both you see that playing out because I, I look at Nick Sirianni in Philadelphia and people say, oh, it's an all-star team, but we've seen all-star teams fall on their face before. We look at Mike McDaniel's doing, look at Brian Dable in his first half of the year and building a culture with the Giants. How do you guys both see the coach of the year race playing out? Well, I think the hardest thing, especially for Mike McDaniel, a young first-time head coach, is the buy-in because you, you want basically the team to buy what you're selling. And when you're selling from the point of you're very young and haven't been a head coach before, veteran players can be a little wary of, okay, is, is you know, where where's your receipts, you know, that says this is going to work. But then the more success you start having on the field, the more you start to buy in to what's going on. So I, I think he has the buy-in. And then the story that just came out where yeah. Tua was kind of doubting himself and, and McDaniel, you know, gets a 700-play real of Tua to show him, hey, you're a good player. So, I mean, those are those are some of the little things that, that players appreciate. Players, the biggest appreciation players have is when they know a coach has their back. And it seems like Mike is really, they're, they're, they're buying what he's selling and he has their back. So I, I think he's doing an incredible job. Yeah, I, I think to some extent we might have to start calling this the Mike Vrabel Coach of the Year Award because the NFL <laughs> MacGyver every season at Tennessee somehow manages to have that yeah. team atop the division <laughs> and in the AFC playoff race. And so I don't want to get into this conversation without mentioning <laughs> Vrabes because while sure. he is – like I don't think he technically gets the Belichick coaching tree label. He played there, but he wasn't a coach there. He's been one of the few associated with that brand who's gone out and had high-level success, at least up until now. But I would say, yeah, Mike McDaniel uh, coming in the way he did, too, with what we had going on in the offseason with the departure and the prior coaching staff and the lawsuit with the NFL. He was coming into a situation where he was going to be compared each and every step of the way to what had just been going on and a team that had been building towards success. And so to have that be the backdrop and for him to come in and have this success – there is part of me that's also partial to Brian Dable because he's managed to come in and kind of do that said same thing with this Giants team. You've got Saquon Barkley, who's looking like, <clears throat> excuse me, the consensus answer for comeback player of the year and what he's been able to put on tape. And they've done it so different than how Brian, than Dable did it in Buffalo, right? That was the air raid bills. That was him spreading everyone out with those weapons. 
And I think now to see them be a part of this NFL shift to getting back under center and running the ball the way they have is impressive. What I love about what they've been able to do in New York is they realize that Saquon Barkley is a weapon in space. Get him in space, get him in in a one-on-one matchup with a linebacker or a defensive back, and he's going to win that matchup every time. And and they've kind of replicated what Miami's done to a much higher level with with far less talent and and far more injuries and far more adversities. And, And, you know, nothing against Daniel Jones. It feels like he kind of is what he is, whereas Tua has elevated himself into that MVP conversation. Speaking of the MVP, season ends today. I I know it doesn't. I know there's four or five more games left. Who's your MVP vote for if you had to cast it today? Uh, Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes. I think think this is easy. Yeah, I I, I think like – it's kind of like the Heisman in college football where it's become very unfun because the answer seems so obvious to everyone. We mentioned to it. Like, I don't want it to be that this to be about bashing quarterbacks for having weapons. I think in the NFL context matters so much for quarterbacks and Tua as an example is a quarterback that's finally been given an environment around him where success is likely. We're seeing that start to happen in Jacksonville with Trevor Lawrence now. It's starting to trickle in with Justin Fields. Quarterbacks need to have enough around them to go out there and have a chance. But I think with Patrick The fact that they removed the best wide receiver on that team and the offense has not missed a beat. The fact that they can only do that as a bet on their quarterback, who they invested half a billion dollars in and who has gone out there and now for a second straight year had to find different ways to win, has made Juju Smith-Schuster look like one of the rejuvenated players in the NFL, still obviously has that connection with Travis Kelsey. That whole machine operates only because Patrick is so good and so capable in the middle of it. And I think that side-by-side of, hey, the Dolphins have gotten a lot better in part because you brought this player over should also, in this case, for this conversation, not to bash Tua, but to highlight, hey, they only could do that and get away with it because of Patrick. Uh, You know, I I think it's getting to the point where we're trying to think of anybody but Patrick Mahomes, right? Because he's just the best player and we're like, okay, so who else can we give it to? Uh, but but you can't. And he's yeah. having arguably the best statistical yeah. year of his career, taking Tyreek Hill out of the Take, equation, as you alluded to, Mike. As yeah. Mike just said, taking their best receiver away. So as much as we want to try to go somewhere else, I don't think you can. And we know, just kind of like the Heisman, which kind of hacks me off, it's a quarterback award, which to me gets a little ridiculous. You're talking about the biggest award. and and But I understand the position is the most important position. But as a former D lineman, I have to say things like that. Uh, that I don't like the quarterback getting it all the time. But it, it's really difficult to look anywhere but Patrick Mahomes right now. Yeah, I think Michael Parsons belongs in that conversation as kind of that outside-the-box candidate. And now that you have ranked choice voting, you look at Mike, you talked about it earlier, what, what he's been able to do for that defense. I mean, you have 12 sacks, six games of two sacks, you know, already on, on his ledger, three forced fumbles. He had the touchdown return. He's been the kind of player that you have to game plan every play against. But now that we talked about the MVP of the league, we got to go in a different direction here. What's the MVP of this new Chili's football happy hour menu? What, what, if you guys oh. had to cast your, your Chili's MVP, who, who are you putting number one on that list? See, I, I, I'm, I'm always a wing guy, and they have nine different flavors of wings, which, I mean, it satisfies What's the go-to? Everybody. What's the go-to uh, of, out of the nine? Well, I mean, I, I, to me, I'm, I'm, I would probably lean to teriyaki, which is pretty wild. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a teriyaki guy, but, but give, me a, give me probably the – Close to the hottest wing. If you make me pick one, give me close to the hottest wing. Probably not the hottest because it might ruin my day. Other people can handle heat more than me. 
But in all honesty, while I'm a wing guy, I would probably lean to the sliders. I'm also a monster slider guy. So I, I would probably, if push comes to shove, I would go with the sliders. I love first and foremost that curly fries are getting their just yeah. due on this happy hour yeah. menu with pretty much every item, whether it's the sliders, whether it's cheese steak, all that involved with the wings, you can get curly fries with it. It's objectively the best cut of fries. For me, it's no question though. I am my father's son. I was raised dessert first and the adult molten that oh. comes with the shot as well. You get ice cream and a little bit of buzz going on with it while you're sitting there watching the game. It, it's excellent. Wow. It's anyone's first choice. And my God, the last time me and dad were at Chili's, we got one one of those put down in front of the two of us. And you'd have thought we'd have been out in the desert for 40 days and 40 yeah. minutes. That thing <laughs> got erased from existence. And so I would say just based on ferocity that we attacked it with, the adult molten is the absolute goat for me. Yeah, we were like hyenas on that one. That disappeared pretty quickly. Yeah, so, you know, I have to ask. I mean, you, you guys both are wing guys. So when you go to Chili's, who's housing more wings? Is it father or son? Who, who's who's putting down more? You want to tell yeah. him? Uh, we, you, you know, we had him? that contest. And it, it's not shocking Well, to there me. was a contest. Yeah, oh, we, yeah. Had a, we had a contest, and, and Mike beat me. He was – and I'm usually a pretty good wing eater, but speed isn't – we have both had contests, again, professional eaters. Uh, you know, the the – you know, the, the Joey chestnut yeah. of the world and where we've obviously gotten crushed against them, but against one another. Yeah. Mike is, I, I, I feel, and I'll say it this way. I've raised him well because he is now the, the, the student is now beating the teacher. That was akin to the Vikings and Cowboys game that we watched. It was him getting you beat just to sleep. Him. Wait a minute. Beat, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't it, that you were bad. drowning in drumsticks while I was over there thriving in the chaos. Whatever. Whatever. What, 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 listen, we had a ball because as, as we've talked about, any time there's football on, it's happy hour at Chili. So, I mean, it is, it is a great time. It is a very, very cool environment to go sit and watch the game. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was. And if you're like us and you grew up going to Chili's a lot, a lot of your favorite menu items have graduated. I always tell yeah. people I was a skillet queso kid. Now they've got the white queso with the curly fries. You get the adult molten. Everything is kind of growing up a little bit with you in that happy hour so you can go kick it, kick it for the game. Love the white queso. The white queso yes. with the curly fries is definitely next mm. level. Oh. No doubt about that. So be sure to check out the Chili's Football Happy Hour, their brand new menu. And thanks to Mike Golick and Mike Golick Jr. This has been a lot of fun, phenomenal. And at some point, I, I will do some damage on some white queso with curly fries and some garlic parm wings with you guys mm. at Chili's. And I'm looking forward to that. That sounds good. Can't wait. Thanks for having us. Thanks for, thanks for coming. That was a lot of fun. And I kid you not, I am going to make a point to get to Chili's to try out the waffle fry queso. Because if there are two things that I love, two appetizer type of meals that I love, it's waffle fries are the best kind of fries, and the white queso. You put the white queso and the waffle fries together, what could be better? So it was a lot of fun talking football with the Golics. They're always a great time. And one team that's having a really great time right now is the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, I don't know that an 11-1 team can really still – make a statement. You're 11-1. and one. You, You've basically dominated everybody on your schedule with the exception of a second-half hiccup at home against Washington earlier this year. But my goodness, what a beatdown they put on the Tennessee Titans, 35-10 to 10 on Sunday afternoon. A.J. Brown goes off. We're going to get into A.J. Brown a little bit later in the podcast. I promise you that. But yet another example of Jalen Hurts elevating his game to a new level. 
The kid just finds new ways to beat you every single week. One week after the Eagles rush for 376 yards or something equally ridiculous, he goes out and throws for 380 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, and he's pulled for the game midway through the fourth quarter. So I look at Jalen Hurts, and there's a lot to like about the kid, and certainly that he gets better every week. He's gotten better at every stage of his career, going back from when he transferred in college to his first three years in the NFL with the Eagles. To me, he's he's the kid to beat. He's the player to beat for MVP in the NFL right now. Jalen Hurts is the catalyst for the Eagles' success, and we've seen Philadelphia all year. We've seen them go on the road and win tough games. We've seen them absolutely destroy teams in new ways every single week. We've seen Jonathan Gannon's defense get better as the season goes along. And Sunday, looking at what they were able to do up front with Josh Sweat and with Hassan Reddick on a couple of sacks combining there, if you can generate that type of pressure off the edge, good luck. It's going to be really hard to beat this team offensively for opponents. But just how good are the Eagles? Just how tough are the Eagles to beat? Well, I spoke to a good friend of mine, Alan Bell from CBS Sportsline, to get a sense for who the Eagles would be favored against and who they'd be underdogs against in a potential playoff run through the NFC and potential Super Bowl matchups in the AFC. And the numbers were a little bit surprising. According to Sportsline's Alan... Let's edit that out. And the numbers were a little bit surprising. According to Sportsline's Alan Bell, the Eagles would be favored at home against any team in the NFC. Any of the current playoff teams, the Eagles would be favored to win that game in the playoffs, but they'd be a four-point road underdog against the Dallas Cowboys. So if the Eagles lose to Dallas on Christmas Eve and they lose out on home field advantage and they have to go to Dallas in the playoffs, the Eagles would be four-point underdogs. Meanwhile, on the AFC side of the bracket, we're obviously talking neutral site here. We're talking about a potential Super Bowl matchup. The Eagles will be one-and-a-half-point favorites against the Dolphins, two-and-a-half-point favorites against the Cincinnati Bengals, but they'd be one-and-a-half-point underdogs to the Chiefs and one-and-a-half-point underdogs to the Bills. Now, Bell told me that the reason the Eagles would be underdogs against the Bills is the public loves betting on Buffalo. When you look at this Eagles team and you look at just how head and shoulders above the rest, especially the in the NFC that they are, you know, they're favored at home against all of them, the Vikings, the Cowboys, the uh, San Francisco 49ers. And that's going to be the great variable here. What exactly are the 49ers without Jimmy Garoppolo and with Brock Purdy? But the Eagles are built to beat you in a multitude of ways. We saw it Sunday with A.J. Brown going absolutely bonkers against his former team, 135 yards and three touchdowns. We saw what Jalen Hurts did two weeks ago against the Packers. We saw what he did Sunday, two very different game plans. And the Eagles offensive line didn't play all that well. They were penalized like five times in the first half on Sunday against the Titans. And they still blew him out. They still won the game going away. It still wasn't competitive. That's where I think the Eagles are the team to beat far and away in the NFC. And the numbers don't lie. The point spreads certainly don't lie that the Eagles are the team to beat across the NFL and they can beat you in a multitude of ways. And a team that's really similar, a team that nobody's talking about, a team that I think has been, if you listen to this show, if you have followed me on Twitter, if you've read my work, it's a team that I think has been coming on all season and getting better. And I think they had their best game of the season against one of the top teams in the league is the Cincinnati Bengals. Because when you look at what the Bengals did on Sunday afternoon against the Kansas City Chiefs, and that was a statement for a team that's trying to overcome the curse of being the Super Bowl loser and not making it back or the supposed Super Bowl hangover. Nobody's talking about the Bengals, but they welcomed Kansas City into the jungle 
and they handed them a loss. They handed them a third straight loss. They handed them their third loss since January 1 against Cincinnati. And they did it the way the Bengals have been playing in recent weeks. Dominant offensive line play. We talked about it before a couple weeks ago. The Bengals went out and they rebuilt their offensive line. They brought in Lyle Collins. They brought in Karras. They brought in a couple of veterans. Their weakest link last year, and it was exposed in the Super Bowl against Aaron Donald and the Rams, was their offensive line. They went out and they fixed it. And we know offensive lines don't gel overnight. Well, they're gelling now. They really are. And I look at Joe Burrow, and I look at what he did on Sunday afternoon on the heels of what he did in the AFC Championship game back in January in Arrowhead in a hostile environment against Patrick Mahomes. I really don't understand how Joe Burrow is not in the top five quarterbacks in the NFL conversation. I don't get it. We can talk about a supporting cast only once. He did that on Sunday afternoon without Joe Mixon, who's a dominant running back. He did that on Sunday afternoon throwing for 286 yards and two scores, including Tyler Boyd dropping an 18-yard touchdown at the goal line, just lost it in the lights or something. Joe Burrow did it with Jamar Chase playing at something like 80%, not even fully healthy. And you look at that third down throw to T. Higgins on third and 11 into the tightest of windows with a defender draped all over him to ice the game. Yeah, that was one of those moments that if it's in an AFC championship game, if it happens in a Super Bowl, that's a legacy-defining throw for Joe Burrow in those moments. But in this moment, in a gotta-have-it game that, that really boosts their playoff chances and their playoff seating, and it's a statement game to the rest of the league against a team that everybody is penciling in as the AFC representative in the Super Bowl, a team that prior to Sunday had home-field advantage throughout the AFC playoffs, it's still a monster moment. It's still a damn big-boy throw by Joe Burrow. And he had a very similar moment on third and seven in the AFC championship game against the Chiefs last year. But nobody talks about him as a top five quarterback. You suggested on Twitter and people say you're crazy. They say you're nuts. The kid went to a Super Bowl last year. He's playing even better today. And he's only going to keep getting better from here because of the supporting cast that's around him and the more time that he has to play with Jamar Chase at wide receiver. But it's more than that. I don't know a quarterback in the NFL who has better mechanics than Joe Burrow. I don't know there's a quarterback in the NFL who's more poised and cool under pressure than Joe Burrow. He might be the most poised under pressure quarterback that we've seen since Peyton Manning. And at least the closest in those big time moments that we've seen to Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady. That's where Joe Burrow is. And he's done it time and time again. Yet people just don't talk about him in that same category. And he's got the kind of swagger. You see it every Sunday in the outfits that he arrives to the games in. You see it every week. You see it in the post-game press conferences. He's got that Joe Cool mentality. It's his nickname for a reason. The kid just oozes swagger. And he's the type of player that players want to play with. He's the type of player that teammates gravitate to. And, you know, I'll just say this. Who in the NFL, if you were starting a franchise right now, today, who would you take above Joe Burrow as your starting quarterback. Obviously, I think Jalen Hurts is in that conversation because he's a tactician. He's clutch. He has multiple ways to win. Maybe Josh Allen, obviously, strongest arm in the NFL, really poised under pressure. You saw it on Thanksgiving, leading the Bills back in the final 20 seconds to win the game and avoid overtime on the road. Patrick Mahomes has the resume, but I don't know that he's as mechanically sound a quarterback as Joe Burrow is. Maybe Tua? Maybe, 
But part of Tua's success is driven by the supporting cast with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, and now Jeff Wilson in the backfield and Mike Gesicki at tight end. And don't get me wrong, Joe Burrow's supporting cast is awesome. Might be, outside of Kansas City, the strongest collection of weapons in the NFL. Might even be better than the Chiefs right now without Tyreek Hill when you talk about Jamar Chase and Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins and, of course, Joe Mixon and Samaji Perrine in the backfield. Great supporting cast, great weapons. Joe Burrow maximizes those guys. Joe Burrow gets the best out of those guys, gets the most out of those guys, especially in big moments. So in my opinion, Joe Burrow is cemented firmly inside the top five quarterbacks in the NFL, and he might even be better than that. And this post, this stretch run and into the postseason, I think we're going to find out even more about Joe Burrow. I think we're going to even find out in big moments like Sunday, we're going to see just how clutch he is especially if the Bengals make it back to the postseason, if they could make it as a wild card and they have to go on the road and they have to play three games to get there. If they make another run to the Super Bowl, then I think people are going to talk about Joe Burrow a little bit differently. Maybe people look back and say, oh, Lombardo wasn't wrong. He was just early. That's how I think it's going to turn out. One team that it might be getting late, unfortunately, for is the San Francisco 49ers because I don't know where they go without Jimmy Garoppolo. And you have to feel for this franchise when you think about everything and all the adversity they've gone through this year, losing Trey Lance to the broken ankle way back in week two. He was supposed to be the starting quarterback. This was supposed to be the year that Trey Lance took the reins of that offense. This was supposed to be Trey Lance's team. But they bring back Jimmy Garoppolo, and he plays great. Graduates from being a game manager to a game decider. Joe Burrow, excuse me, Jimmy Garoppolo was playing the best football of his career before he got hurt on Sunday breaking his foot against the Miami Dolphins. But the good news is, even though the backup quarterback is Mr. Irrelevant, Brock Purdy out of Iowa State, the final player chosen in the 2022 NFL draft, the good news is general manager John Lynch and the 49ers, they built an offense that's loaded, absolutely loaded with playmakers. And it almost feels like if you could strap the most reliable autopilot system I'm not talking like a Tesla autopilot system. I'm talking from an airplane. If you put an autopilot system and throw it into a Ferrari, that's what the 49ers offense is, at least in this scheme, at least for a quarterback. And I was talking to some people inside the league on Tuesday, and there's a lot of love for Brock Purdy. There are some people in this league that thought that he should have gone certainly a lot higher than the seventh round and certainly way before the final pick in the NFL draft coming out of Iowa State. I had an offensive coach tell me that, What he lacks in arm strength, he more than makes up for with intangibles and smarts. And this coach loved him coming out of the draft, loved him coming out of Iowa State. His team didn't need a quarterback, so they didn't wind up taking him. But I just look at all the talent on this 49ers roster, and we all know the names. Debo Samuel, obviously one of the more versatile playmakers in the entire league. Dynamic playmaker as a pass catcher as a wide receiver. You can use him on end arounds. You can deploy him out of the backfield. I don't know how much the offense necessarily has to change. Obviously, I don't think that you're going to be stretching the field with Debo. I don't think that you're going to be, you know, working the long ball as often as Jimmy Garoppolo was over the last couple of weeks. But you can design more gadget plays. I was talking to a scout who told me you're probably going to see more gadget plays. You're probably going to see even more Christian McCaffrey on end arounds and reverses. You're going to see them run the ball even more than they already are. And it's an offense that relies a lot on pre-snap motion, dictating your matchup to the opposing defense. And if Purdy has the intelligence to execute all of that 
all those reads before the ball was snapped, then they're going to be fine. See, here's the problem, though. San Francisco has Super Bowl aspirations and expectations. They were playing at a Super Bowl level going into this game against the Miami Dolphins. We talked about it last week. We've talked about how this is the number one defense in the NFL, number one scoring defense in the NFL, number one rushing defense in the NFL. D'Amico Ryans and that defense are leading the charge for the 49ers. That hasn't changed. And that, that part of the formula still works. But I don't know if this is still a Super Bowl team with Brock Purdy at quarterback. It's going to have to be Brock Purdy overseeing an offense that's focused on running the football, limiting the mistakes, and making sure that Kyle Shanahan tells him each week, you don't need to be the hero. You don't need to play hero ball. Get rid of it quickly. Get it to George Kittle. Get it to Christian McCaffrey. Get it to Debo Samuel. Get it to Brandon Ayuk. Get it to your playmakers and let them do the work. That's how they're going to win. We're going to find out a whole lot about Brock Purdy on Sunday afternoon when they take on Todd Bowles' defense and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady. What a first start that is for the kid. You're going up against the greatest quarterback of all time, very dominant and talented defense with playmakers and all pros at all three levels in your first start in a game where you really have no margin from error based on how well the Seattle Seahawks are playing within your division. You can't trip up. It's be a tough spot, tough spot to make your first start. And I was talking to a quarterback coach, and he told me he thinks that sometimes it's easier to come off the bench cold, like Purdy did on Sunday afternoon against the Dolphins, mm -hmm. than it is having a whole week to prepare, a whole week to think about the opportunity, and a whole week to stress about the opportunity. So we're going to find out a lot about the 49ers. We're going to find out whether they are still contenders or whether you label them into the pretender category after Jimmy Garoppolo's injury, I tend to think Purdy's going to do pretty well. I don't know that he's going to win the game on Sunday, but I don't know that he's going to be the reason that they lose either. One team that I'm really bearish on, especially after what they did on Tuesday, is the Tennessee Titans. And I'm not so sure that I understand the timing of John Robinson getting fired. Look, I get it. I understand that he's the guy who traded A.J. Brown. I get it that drafting trail on Burks and trying to piecemeal and patchwork a wide receiving core together to make up for losing AJ Brown might not have been the right philosophy or the right way to go. I get it, but you're seven and five. You have a two game lead in the AFC South. You're going to win the division. You're going to go to the playoffs for the fifth time in six years, but the Titans always seem to have kind of been what they are, right? They've kind of seemed like one of these teams that has 11, 12, 13 really good weeks in them every single year. They run out to a 7-3, and 7-4 and four start. They fall back to mediocrity in, in, down the stretch, and they wind up losing early in the postseason. Sure, they made it to the AFC Championship game in 2019, losing to the Chiefs, but they've lost in the wild card round. They've lost twice in the division round. Not good enough. I, I, I get it, but, you know, to fire a guy – on December 6th, like the Titans did John Robinson, that feels like you're making it personal. That feels like you saw A.J. Brown go off, eight catches, 119 yards, and a score. That feels like you saw what happened and you decided that you were going to get your pound of flesh right then and there. That's what this feels like. I don't know that championship caliber organizations do this, but I was talking to some people around the league and someone in that building made a great comment that they've had a championship head coach but have struggled in personnel under John Robinson, and that's why Robinson had to go. 
that there's a belief inside the Titans organization that John Robinson has been holding Tennessee back. And I wouldn't be surprised, and this is just me speculating out off of some conversations, I'm not reporting this, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Mike Vrabel and John Robinson were engaged in an epic power struggle based on the A.J. Brown trade. Because if you're Mike Vrabel, you want to win every game, right? You want to go out there and you want to dominate every week. You want all the weapons you can get, especially on an offense that already has Derrick Henry. And I don't know that Ryan Tannehill is anything more than a top 12 quarterback in the league. I don't think he's any better than that. If you have a top 12 quarterback, not a top five quarterback, you need weapons, elite weapons. A.J. Brown is an elite weapon and it hasn't worked without him. So it wouldn't surprise me if Mike Vrabel won a power struggle over John Robinson and that's why Robinson is out. Because I look at Tennessee, they're in one of the easiest divisions in football to win. But Robinson has made some big moves that haven't paid off. The Julio Jones signing, big swing and a miss. They've had several first-round busts over the years that you just can't afford to have. And if the organization believes that Mike Vrabel is a Super Bowl-caliber head coach and John Robinson's personnel decisions is holding them back, from winning a Super Bowl or getting to one, then yeah, you have to move on. I would have just waited until the end of the year. I would have just waited until this season was over. Because if you can't crack this glass ceiling right now, what's the difference? This feels like you were making it personal. I don't understand the timing, but I certainly understand the move. All right, let's give out the Lombardo Trophy. Because, you know, we touched on the Eagles earlier in this show. And certainly, I think that they made a statement as much as you can at 11 and 1, as I said. But you know who made a real statement? You know who made a, a, a dynamic, you know, middle finger type statement to his former team? That's A.J. Brown. Eight catches, 119 yards, two touchdowns, and he fired a general manager. He got a general manager fired. He got John Robinson fired. Listen, A.J. Brown has changed everything for the Philadelphia Eagles. You look at what he's done this year. You look at the numbers, you look at the connection that he has with Jalen Hurts, he opens up everything else in that offense. Quez Watkins has more room to operate. Devonta Smith, you can utilize him as a deep threat because of all the attention that one of the safeties has to pay to A.J. Brown's side of the field every time A.J. Brown is on the field. But Jalen Hurts and A.J. Brown have been nothing short of spectacular. Hurts has a 131.3 quarterback rating on A.J. Brown's 90 targets. That's pretty special. And this Eagles offense is firing on all cylinders, and I don't see any reason that that should let up. I don't see any reason why the Eagles offense is going to struggle down the stretch as long as these two are firing on all cylinders, as long as the offensive line is playing well, as long as they're running the ball as efficiently as they are. But I thought one of the cooler moments in Sunday's game, especially when it comes to A.J. Brown, and really shows how dominant he is, and what a high level he's playing at right now. In the second quarter, Hertz unfurls a deep ball down the sideline. A.J. Brown appears to make a tiptoe catch along the sideline, brings it in, in coverage, looks like a 40-yard touchdown. His toe was out of bounds. It's waved off. The very next play, the very next play, he gets the Titans cornerback to bite on a double move, break his ankles, and scores a 40-yard touchdown on the very next play. That's just showing how easy it is. That's just saying, look, I'm elite, and I'm showing you why, and I'm showing you how elite I am 
right here, right now. And that's one of the reasons why A.J. Brown takes home this week's Lombardo Trophy. Now let's move to the pick of the week. This is an easy one. I'm going with the Vikings. Getting one and a half points at Detroit over the Lions. And I'm sorry, am I missing something here? What am I missing? Fill me in. Because the Vikings have won nine of ten. And they've won each of their nine ten, of their nine games. Let's start that over. I'm sorry. Am I missing something here? The Vikings have won nine of their last ten, and they've won each of their last nine wins by one score. All nine of those games have been one-score victories for the Minnesota Vikings. And some are going to say that they were escaping. Some are going to point to that one-score margin of victory as saying that they're not that good. They got lucky. No. When you win nine games in a row by one score or less, that's an elite team coming up big in the biggest moments of games. That's a team finding a way to win. That's a team figuring it out. They're not losing these one-score games. There's a reason they're winning these games. They're positioning themselves to have the ball late or their defense, as was the case on Sunday, made a huge stop against the New York Jets. And certainly that game was a lot closer than people expected it to be. It was a lot closer against the Jets, especially in the second half, than maybe that game should have been. But the Vikings and Kirk Cousins in that offense, they're coming up clutch in the biggest moments of games. I just don't get it. And I understand the Lions have won four out of five. But let's slow our roll on the Dan Campbell and Detroit Lions train just a little bit if we could. The only playoff team that the Lions have played over that stretch is the Buffalo Bills. And Josh Allen led them back for a game-winning field goal in the final 20 seconds of the game to avoid overtime and win on Thanksgiving. They couldn't close. It was a great story. It was a good game. I think Ben Johnson is going to be a head coach pretty quickly, the offensive coordinator. We've talked about that before. But if you can't close against the Buffalo Bills, why should you expect to be able to beat the Minnesota Vikings, who are one of the top teams in the NFC? a team that has legitimate Super Bowl aspirations. I don't understand how the Vikings are getting points here, but it's an easy pick of the week. I'll take the Minnesota Vikings plus one and a half. And if you're riding with me, if you're going with the Minnesota Vikings as your pick of the week, then go to FanDuel.com, bet the Vikings plus 1.5. I'm telling you, this is easy money. Screenshot your betting slip and tweet it at me, at Matt Lombardo NFL, and I'll mention you on the podcast next week. It's that easy. This show has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to Mike Golick and Mike Golick Jr. for joining us on behalf of Chili's. Thanks to Thomas Darrow, who does a tremendous job producing the podcast each and every week behind the glass. You can read me on heavy.com. I have the 10 takeaways of the week every Monday, my big national column on Wednesday, and lots of great insight and content all throughout the week. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Lombardo NFL. Appreciate you joining the Matt Lombardo Show. You can check us out on the Apple Podcast Store, SoundCloud, Spotify, Spreaker, YouTube, all of your favorite podcast platforms. I'm Matt Lombardo. I'll talk to you next week.